In the summer of 2020, after the killing of George Floyd, businesses and employers across America pledged to be anti-racist. Many of the largest law firms joined this pledge. We often refer to these law firms as big law. These law firms have clients who are the largest corporate players in Wall Street institutions. They employ thousands of people and make millions of dollars. What do these pledges of anti-racism specifically mean from big law firms? Can big law firms be anti-racist in the full sense of the term? Welcome to another episode of Through the Gale. In this episode, we will be discussing what does it mean for big law to be anti-racist. I'm going to turn this episode over to Alexis Banks, Marka Wright, and Sneha Pandya to shed light on this question. My name is Alexis Banks. I am a recent graduate of Columbia Law School. And when I first started out Columbia, um, as I do believe many law students do, when they come to law school, they dream of working in the public sector. Uh, But for myself and oftentimes many other students, we find that the realities of student loans and structural career support in law school leads to many of us starting our careers in big law. Um, And I think this is especially true for students at Columbia Law School, which consistently sends the largest percentage of its graduates to the nation's 100 largest law firms. And these large law firms represent and serve the nation's largest corporations, which I think simply put means that big law is an essential engine in the machine of American capitalism. And my name is Mark Wright, and I am also a recent graduate of Columbia And hi, everyone. My name is Sneha Pandia. I am a lawyer working in D.C. and also a graduate of Columbia Law School joining this conversation today. Many of these big law firms are historically bastions of wealth and racial disparity. And now they've recently undertaken diversity and inclusion efforts to address racial inequality in their hiring and their employment practices. And some firms have even joined the Law Firm Anti-Racism Alliance, which was established kind of in the wake of the summer of 2020. Despite these efforts, though, the fundamental issue, I think, remains to be seen that as large corporate entities, can big law really be capable of being anti-racist? That's a really big uh, responsibility. And if, if they can, what are those steps to them getting there? How, how do they do it? I think there are many ways that we could approach this question, such as, you know, through the internal efforts that these law firms make to change themselves internally and and learn from the experiences of lawyers of color within their own walls. Uh, But I think we wanted to take a little bit of a different approach that was a bit more external and dive in on big law and its role in modern capitalism and its broader impact on society. Um, And I think that's where we ended up talking about pro bono. Um, And so pro bono is uh, an aspect of the legal industry in which Free legal services are provided um, that can be, you know, by a lawyer working in their own practice or by a law firm um, that typically takes on its own paying clients. So I know from my experiences in law school that pro bono is a big selling point for big law firms. It's marketed to students, potential hires, clients, and the community at large. Law firms go to really great lengths to underscore their robust pro bono practice. And from the law student perspective, this sort of targeted communication really works. 
law students that Alexis mentioned um, and that Mark and I talked about on our episode about law schools often decide to become lawyers to serve the public interest and to seek justice. They'll shop around for future employers through summer internships and specifically ask about pro bono opportunities to serve the public. For many law students who enter big law early in their careers, who plan to transition into public service later on, pro bono is really an opportunity to make a societal impact as a part of their job. And it can also be more fulfilling than their billable work. Yeah, and I think when I was going through the process of interviewing at law firms, I recognized that many attorneys uh, indicated that witnessing the impact of their pro bono work really allowed them to feel like the work that they do has more impact than just on their firm's biggest clients who are often corporations. It seems like pro bono is framed as a sort of foil to the corporate nature of that uh, associate job. And the framing maybe is that, yes, big law firms and attorneys work for large corporations and cater to companies' needs. But on the other hand, these firms and attorneys can still better society through their pro bono work. We wanted to look into the impact of pro bono, um, especially as law firms advance their anti-racism work. Um, So to do so, we spoke with Professor Scott Cunnings, the Robert Henningsen Professor of Legal Ethics at the UCLA School of Law, who teaches and writes broadly about the legal profession and access to justice. Professor Cummings has written very extensively about pro bono, specifically within the big law context over the past few decades. Um, In his most recent book, Global Pro Bono, Causes, Contacts, and Contestation, deals with pro bono's increasing role in people accessing the legal system, both within the United States and around the world. To start, we asked Professor Cummings why pro bono is considered public interest work at these big law firms. What is it about the corporate side of the work that makes it fall outside of this public interest work that pro bono seems to be labeled as? I think there are a lot of corporate lawyers who do really, really excellent work pro bono and otherwise. Lots of that work doesn't impact the public at all. A lot of what corporate lawyers do is kind of move money back and forth between corporations that are fighting uh, over dollars. Um, and in, in, in some of what big, big law firm lawyers do um, actually makes a meaningful difference in, in people's lives, just in their regular um, day-to-day practice. But, you know, I, I think that the point that you're, you're underscoring that's really important is that firms do represent large corporations for the most part. And those clients often want to do things that are not in the public interest. They pay a lot of money to lawyers to get around regulation that's designed to protect workers, consumers in the environment. And this doesn't mean that they don't sometimes stand up and tell clients to do the right thing or walk away when clients want to go too far. And I think we saw an example of the latter when some big law firms who had signed up to represent Trump, for example, in the 2020 election, uh, a litigation walked away um, when they thought the litigation was crossing the line. So. There are good examples of firms pushing back, um, but too often they don't. And in that way, I think corporate lawyers do end up doing the bidding for the most part of big firms that are not thinking about acting for the public interest, but are thinking about acting for profit. 
Yeah, and I think that tension serves as a backdrop for pro bono work across the board. Large law firms want to make a socially positive impact outside of their billable corporate work. They carve out space in their practice to do so intentionally in an effort to do more than just serve corporate clients, especially given the large amount of resources and funding that they have as compared to public interest organizations. And that's why we also spoke with Debo Adigbile, a partner at Wilmer Hale in New York City in their government and regulatory litigation group. Debo is a pretty famous litigator who spent a decade at the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, LDF, where he served as LDF's head of litigation. And in 2016, President Obama appointed Debo to a six-year term as a commissioner on the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights, where he still serves today. His experience in both the public and private sector shows what pro bono can actually do for communities. From my earliest days in big law, I have been involved in various pro bono matters, ranging from individual matters about uh, people's entitlement to disability benefits that were central and critical to their sustenance and and well-being, to matters uh, involving domestic violence and a necessity for an order of protection and ultimately a marital dissolution uh, where there was a, a, a young child that was in a family situation that was not great for either the mother or the child. Uh, I, I was very glad to hear many years later when I was at the Legal Defense Fund that 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 person who I had known as a child went on to graduate from one of the nation's top colleges and I, I felt so good to hear that she had uh, achieved so much and continued on a, on a path of opportunity to matters involving constitutional law and um, either in the context of democracy and voting rights, uh, which, which has been a through line in my career, to capital cases, including um, capital cases that were argued in the United States Supreme Court. You name it, and uh, I've come close to, to doing it in, in pro bono, but what is most noteworthy about my pro bono experiences, one is that my um, greatest career opportunity grew out of some pro bono representations that I had as a, as a very junior lawyer when I got to work on my very first voting case um, led by the uh, wonderful, late, great A. Leon Higginbotham Jr. Um, and I got to collaborate with the Legal Defense Fund, uh, the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, which would later become my employer. And so doing work, serving others and learning about voting rights turned into what became for me an extraordinary career opportunity. And the other thing that I would say that has run through my pro bono experiences is that the collaborations and as I have become uh, more of a uh, gray-haired lawyer, creating opportunities for younger lawyers to litigate meaningful cases and, and cases that animate the ideas of why people wanted to go to law school in the first place. Those are, are two really special things about pro bono experiences in, in, in big law. Pro bono clearly has the potential to be an overwhelmingly positive aspect of big law's legal practice. But that doesn't mean there aren't downsides. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. Pro bono can play a role in creating an anti-racist big law, but only through understanding its limitations can we see its potential here. 
Yeah, I found it helpful that Debo shared what his hopes are for what pro bono can be despite its limitations. I guess I don't so much have critiques as I have aspirations. Most of big law recognizes pro bono hours as being counted toward um, the commitments, the billable hour commitments that, that lawyers are asked to make and that associates are asked to make. And I think that's very important. It's important so that the work done in service of clients who don't have the means to pay for it is not regarded as less than or less important or significant than the work for your paying client. I, I think that mostly now, I think pretty uniformly is my understanding um, that those hours are credited. Now, some firms will cap the number of hours and um, some firms you know, might approach it in slightly different ways. And if the, if the caps are not uh, generous, if folks aren't given the opportunity to really do this work, if, if associates are, are put under uh, pressure not to give your all in any way to one of those cases, that would be inappropriate and not consistent with the standard that I think our profession should aspire to. And um, beyond that, you know, I've sort of talked about some of the, the the matching and the pairing and the understanding the full complexity of matters. And I think it's an occupational hazard that, you know, you may have matchups that work great and then some matchups that don't. But the other thing in lawyering, and this happens both on paying matters and on pro bono matters, is that folks have a range of skills. And very often you need a team with lawyers that have different skills or different strengths in any event. And so um, that's something that I've learned also is to respect people's different competencies. Even very able people are better at some things and some are better at others. It also strikes me that despite there being a wealth of resources at big law firms, big law attorneys still experience structural limitations in pursuing pro bono work. There are lots of opportunities, but lots of challenges. Well, one, one thing is that even um, with the extraordinary resources of big law, there are more cases than any one firm can take on. And there are lots of worthwhile cases that, that don't find lawyers or don't find big lawyers to advocate. And so although pro bono is, is a way, pro bono programs are a way for people to get able representation in very significant cases, vindicating their rights and creating opportunities to be heard, which in and of itself is a value in a multiracial democracy. To, to have the orderly um, vindication or efforts to vindicate people's differences and grievances is itself a good. Um, and, and those of us who are lawyers like to continue to believe that. And so there's value in that. But um, there, there still is a limit to how many hours can be spent. And the, the demand exceeds the supply of lawyer time, even though many firms, including my own, dedicate quite substantial time to pro bono efforts, very often um, dedicating large, large numbers of lawyers, large legal teams to cases that need to be developed and tried and, and substantial um, lawyer time and also expending lots of supporting dollars on uh, vindicating the case. An another issue, I guess, is that sometimes and this goes for all cases, not just pro bono cases, but you have to navigate conflicts. And um, sometimes there are conflicts. Sometimes you 
might want to take a case, but it conflicts with a firm client or, or with an issue that's actively in litigation. And that's something that needs to be navigated. That is more a challenge of big law in general, where you have lots of lawyers and hundreds of lawyers across jurisdictions and lots of clients. And so you need a, a system to make sure that you're discharging your ethical duties. And occasionally that can be one obstacle. And beyond that, I haven't experienced it directly, or at least not in a very long time. Sometimes there is a perspective of some uh, pro bono teams that don't adequately grapple with the the context of the underlying right or the context of the, the, the clients or the plaintiffs whose rights they're trying to vindicate. And the case becomes more of a, of a logic game or a legal exercise than the very serious and life-affirming or sometimes life-threatening, depending on the context of the case, controversy that, that is really affecting people's lives in, in very meaningful ways. And so the legal acumen is very important. There are a number of soft skills and EQ and ability to listen and to meet people where they are um, that are very important as well. And not all lawyers and not all big firm lawyers have those skills, but putting to one side whether they have them or don't have them, not all big firm lawyers and not all firms understand the importance of those skills in navigating and advancing the causes of your clients. Being heard and being listened to, as I said, is not the only objective, but it's an important objective. And respecting the aspirations and goals of your client are, are very important. We also took the opportunity to ask Professor Cummings to share his own critiques of the pro bono structure, especially where it concerns the quality of junior attorneys and the work that they are performing for their pro bono clients. Quality control is a big concern that doesn't just affect pro bono, but it affects pro bono in a particular way. I think we know empirically that um, at the big firm level, most pro bono gets done by more junior attorneys. And although I think firms care deeply about maintaining quality all the way down and treating pro bono on the same footing as they treat billable work, there's some evidence that that doesn't always hold true when you get down to the reality of the way that pro bono operates. And it's often the case that um, more junior associates doing pro bono work operate with kind of less stringent oversight by partners than they might otherwise on billable cases where there's a lot of money at stake. And I think that structural problem of more junior lawyers taking on pro bono and maybe taking it on without the same kind of systematic oversight that they would get in billable cases that creates the potential for more error. The problem is that the potential for error is concentrated on cases where you're generally representing people that um, are the most vulnerable and, and in many ways have the most to lose. And so there's a mis mismatch there between quality control and oversight and what's at stake for people that don't have otherwise um, a, a very good access to the legal system. But I think the more concerning thing really is the kind of 
things that fall through the gap that we don't hear about, the corners that are cut uh, in ways that really affect people's life in a meaningful way, but uh, you know, kind of don't make it to the to the newspaper. And I, I think that's that's a problem that we really have to be concerned about when we think about the implementation of pro bono from the system lens. So it sounds like the quality control and supervision of pro bono work by junior attorneys is a critical part of the ethics of the legal profession. We want to turn to Depo and ask about what that looks like from inside the big law firm. Pro bono should not be regarded as just a training area for young lawyers without um, the guardrails to make sure that the client's interests are being vindicated, that people are being given opportunities that they're prepared for, and that um, there, there's enough supervision and oversight of the matter such that uh, the client is being vigorously represented. And I think that the tension can be that Sometimes you want to create a vehicle or an opportunity for an associate to take on a case, but you need to make sure that there is enough bandwidth with enough senior lawyers so that nobody is um, laboring without the context and experience that they need to make the judgments about what the clients really require in a, in a given context. And uh, it's very often the case that some younger lawyers will play very substantial roles but at Wilmer Hale, um, I know the partners have a, a long tradition of being deeply involved and engaged in the work of our pro bono matters. And I think probably wouldn't step away from a matter unless there was a senior able lawyer to, to make sure that the um, obligations were being met to the client. And I think given how nonprofit institutions partner with big law firms, and, and they hand over some of their own legal work um, as pro bono to big law attorneys. I also wanted to understand if if any such organization had indicated a positive or negative experience in their relationship with these firms. As we know, Dable has been on both sides of that relationship, and it sounds like it's a delicate balance to make sure the work gets done to the standard of both organizations. There is a, a piece of lawyering a deep piece of lawyering that's about a trust relationship and the ability to be able to communicate in a way that's not only clear, but in a way that inspires trust and conveys to a client that you have their interest in mind. And if lawyers are, are not making that time to, to hear, to evaluate, to, to understand the contributions that clients who are always closer to the facts, may be able to offer and make, you, you, you need to sort of walk humbly as a lawyer and understand what you know, but understand what you might not know and what you'll benefit from learning and, and listening to people about. And so where you have lawyers that exist at too great a remove to the interests and the voice and the needs of one's clients then it, there there can be some challenges and it, it can it can feel as if the service is is some burden or some charity rather than um, a commitment to a very vigorous defense and vindication of the interests. Now there are some clients and and some public interest organizations that have felt that they have had difficult relationships with some uh, firms or counsel and that there hasn't been the, the level of respect and mutuality 
that is necessary. And that's something that can um, undermine the trust relationship and the um, function of a, a working relationship on a, a case team to the extent you're in a litigation posture. our conversation, Devo noted that conflicts of interest, um, which is a common issue in any legal practice, also impacts pro bono. Um, So Sneha, our newly barred attorney, can you please explain what a conflict of interest is in legal practice? Sure. And by the time this podcast airs, I'm sure you both will also be newly barred attorneys and can give us all a refresh. But in its simplest terms, a conflict of interest is when a potential client approaches a lawyer or a law firm with a matter, but the firm discovers that they represent another party to the same type of matter, perhaps on another issue. This means that they couldn't adequately represent the client without compromising the interests of another pre-existing client. And this isn't just a judgment call that firms have to make. Lawyers themselves are bound by the rules of professional responsibility to comply with conflict of interest rules. Yeah, and we learned in law school that it is commonplace for firms to conflict out, which is a term of art, um, of certain matters, which can occur with either paying or pro bono clients. Um, And one thing that I wanted to address after reading some of Professor Cummings' work was the question of pro bono no-go zones. Big corporate side, corporate defense firms just won't take on certain kinds of work as a categorical matter if it touches on client interests and not even just directly touches on specific clients that they're representing, but if it touches on the class of interests that firms represent. So if it's about suing corporations, for example, for employment violations or siding with workers over management in a labor dispute that might generate precedent, or is likely to gain a lot of publicity that a corporate law firm's client base is not going to like to have, firms aren't going to do it. And this is not because there's an actual conflict of interest under the professional rules. It, it's not because uh, the firms are necessarily taking on clients that are directly adverse to clients that they currently represent or have represented in the past. Um, it's just because the client base is going to complain, they're going to take their business elsewhere, And this has a huge chilling effect on the kind of pro bono work that law firms will do. And this is just a structural reality of big law pro bono practice. So I think you often see firms taking on small individual cases for workers that are, for example, denied minimum wage. But these tend to be small one-off against smaller employers and not really likely to generate precedent or publicity that's going to negatively impact clients. So categories of cases where uh, uh, where plaintiffs are bringing suit against corporate interests for workers' rights violations, consumer violations, and environmental violations, those tend to be no-go zones, really, for big firm pro bono. Um, smaller cases are t- t- tend to be okay. Cases against government actors a lot of times are okay if you're talking about um, environmental cases and maybe even uh, employment in some consumer cases, definitely civil liberties cases, which we might talk about uh, in a bit. Uh, but for these corporate cases where you could generate precedent that's going to have a negative long-term impact on the corporate client base, firms aren't willing to touch those. 
it seems like it's not an easy task to keep clients happy while also taking on cases that might be viewed as more controversial to some risk-averse corporations. We wanted to hear from Debo his perspective about how a big law firm might approach that issue. There are some cases, whether they be paying or, or pro bono, that some folks may not want to take for a, a reputational reason, but there's also a, a robust value of providing representation to people, including to um, folks who are deemed unpopular. And so those things stand in a, a, a little bit of, of tension, um, attending to reputational concerns and sensitivities, while at the same time vindicating the, the idea of the right to counsel or the necessity of having an opportunity to be heard in, in a contested proceeding again when you're in a litigation context. So are there clients that might not look favorably on, on firms that take up certain causes? To be sure, there are. And all you need to do is read the headlines to understand how some of those things might play out. But I think that most firms have to understand like who they are and what their commitments are and take the matters that they think are consistent with the firm's um, interests and values and commitment to serving folks that can't afford to pay for legal services. And if you do that, things will probably work out in the end. And I'm also curious if Professor Cummings might have any views on how no-go zones might also limit firms' abilities to take pro bono cases on that implicate civil rights and civil liberties issues, especially as these law firms publicly commit to supporting anti-racism efforts and democracy protection work. I think there's more nuance when it comes to the, these kinds of civil rights, civil liberties cases um, than, there, than there are when, when we're talking about cases that are on issues like employment, consumer, environmental, that are targeted toward corporate defendants. I think, again, those cases are pretty much categorically no pro bono area cases. Civil liberties, civil rights, I think, are more complicated. I mean, firms have done civil rights and civil liberties cases that are hugely impactful. They're instrumental in bringing the marriage equality case to the Supreme Court, for example. They played a huge role fighting for immigrant rights during the Trump era, before the Trump era, and, and continuing on into the Biden administration. So firms um, take on cases against government actors on these issues, even though they might court a fair amount of con controversy and have a pretty high profile in the public domain. I think that's been true on abortion issues historically as well. And a lot of firms have um, been on the side of abortion rights and have filed um, amicus briefs and on behalf of organizations and represented um, plaintiffs and organizations in a variety of different abortion rights cases. It's always been politically controversial. In some ways, it's become more politically controversial and salient. I think there are lots of discussions within firms about whether to take on those cases, on, on what side to come in, whether to come in at all. I know since 2020, firms have sought to do more robust racial justice work. They, as you probably know, started this law firm anti-racist alliance, which is designed to kind of coordinate on a national scale law firm pro bono to uh, target anti-racist work. 
Um, and I think you see that in really important areas like defending voting rights, for example. But I think there, you know, there's a way in which some of that may also be uh, a little bit of PR by the firms designed to demonstrate to their constituencies, which include law students who are thinking about joining the law firms, um, as well as lateral recruits, um, and in some ways, even the client base, that they are committed to civil rights and, and, and anti-racist causes. Um, not to diminish the commitment, because I think it's symbolically very important. Um, I think the question of whether or not it's actually changed the kind of pro bono work that firms do is an open one. Uh, I haven't seen any evidence one way or the other, but I do think it's important and symbolically significant that firms are you know, putting their weight behind those ideas. And I, I want to take the opportunity to note here that Professor Cummings discusses the law firm Anti-Racism Alliance, uh, which is an organization made up of many of the big law firms that, that we're mentioning in our conversation. Uh, and the LFAA was founded in response to the momentum of summer 2020, and it has served as uh, a sort of renewed promise by big law to meaningfully address issues of racism within its spheres of influence. And we also reached out to leaders of the LFAA, um, but unfortunately we were unable to speak with them due to some scheduling constraints. Uh, but we did ask Professor Cummings how the LFAA might be different from previous efforts by big law firms in achieving an anti-racist big law. I think uh, living up to the promise that it's made to actually invest more resources, pro bono and financial, honestly, in supporting uh, robust anti-racist efforts. Uh, that's, I think that's the way that it actually moves from something that is symbolic and potentially has an overlay of PR to something that is substantive and actually goes above and beyond what firms are currently doing. I think, I think the key for me and for observers of pro bono that really understand its importance, but also understand that we constantly have to be pushing to make it better, is that it can't just be repackaging something that already exists. It has to actually be deepening the work in a meaningful way and extending it out so that it has a broader impact. I think the way that the, the, the law firm Anti-Racist Alliance can do that is by facilitating the national conversation on anti-racism that's meaningful and to really think about what are the most important uh, organizations, issues, movements that we can support and how can we most effectively do that given our vast amount of legal resources to move the dial and make a difference. And if that's the conversation and the networks and collaborations that the Alliance is fostering, actually think about uh, thoughtful coordination and allocation of resources toward that end, then I think that's the way it lives up to its promise. Yeah, it sounds like Professor Cummings' insight here is consistent with Debo's perspective that big law can be anti-racist and that he sees pro bono as a fundamental piece of how big law becomes anti-racist. Well, I, I, I think that pro bono representations are a core piece of the anti-racism um, movement and of big laws participation in it. it, it you know, for, for most firms, it's, it's probably the most direct uh, 
contribution or effort that they have in, in that regard. Most firms that participate in substantial pro bono efforts and um, it is a way to come most closely and directly to um, grapple with the issues that are um, manifest the continuing claims of structural and racial inequality in our country and the way in which the, the continuing structural inequalities shape and narrow opportunity for people. So I'm noticing that this conversation has been about whether big law can be anti-racist and if pro bono can be a piece of that process. And now I'm wondering, what about the billable work? What is the role of billable work in reaching that mission? I think choices about which kind of clients to support, which kind of clients to take on, um, viewing that work through an anti-racist lens, making decisions about clients based on their own commitments to anti-racist practice, um, making decisions not to take on clients because of evidence that um, those clients are not engaged in, in activities that are consistent with anti-racist uh, principles and, uh, and, and policies. I think that those, those kinds of decisions can have a huge impact to the extent that firms can organize their corporate law practice in such a way that is not just about a little bit of pro bono on the side, because when we talk about pro bono, even in the most robust situations, we're only talking about roughly 5% of a law firm's overall legal hours going to non-billable pro bono work. So it's a tiny fraction of the work that they do. So I think that's always important to keep in mind. And if this other 95% can actually be allocated in a way that tries to devote that those resources to companies that are actually doing good practices, that can also make make a big difference. And if the Alliance is trying to do that as well and, and fostering a meaningful conversation about how that, that gets done in a way that overcomes the barrier of profit that sort of pervades all of these decisions. And I think that's really important too. And one thing that I kept coming across in Professor Cummings' work was that sometimes the tension between principle and profit isn't as stark as it may seem. And pro bono can actually help firms achieve their bottom line. Um, and he calls this the business case for pro bono. Uh, but we were curious about what the pros and cons of this business case for pro bono and in integrating it into a law firm's profit incentives could potentially be. Big firms are complex institutions with lots of different people, lots of different perspectives and mixed motives. So a lot of people that work in big law want to do pro bono because it's the right thing to do and it's and it's going to have an, a social impact. Others might need more persuading uh, that it won't cut into their profits too deeply. Firms are under these different kinds of constraints, right? They're judged by the American lawyer on the basis of profit per partner. They're also judged by the American lawyer on the basis of pro bono output. So it helps to be able to make different cases to different constituents about pro bono. And that's where this idea of the business case comes in. And it says, look, pro bono isn't just a giveaway of time. There are actual countervailing economic benefits to doing pro bono. Um, as a firm, doing pro bono allows the argument to be made uh, that this is an important value and there are important opportunities that helps recruit the best and the brightest, you guys, other lawyers uh, from, from outside of the firms after 
they're already in practice who want to want to lateral over. It helps retain lawyers because most people want more than just making money. They also want to have some sort of uh, purpose and social value. Um, it helps actually recruit clients, some of whom um, care deeply about these social justice issues. So there are lots of different, again, actors in this ecosystem of pro bono. And the business case allows uh, arguments to be mobilized inside the law firm in support of robust pro bono. And that brings us to the question of reform. What would it take to reform the pro bono system and make it work at its best so that it can fulfill its potential to bring lawyers to serve the public in their roles as corporate actors? Yeah, Professor Cummings seemed to focus on that reform through strong scaffolding and structure getting imposed on pro bono programs. I think having some protocols in place for feedback and evaluation from clients who are served uh, and from other lawyers in the firm that are able to really look at the execution and quality of pro bono work is a really big issue. And it is something that firms could address through kind of more systematic review of pro bono from a qualitative standpoint, um, which you know could mean things like looking at outcomes of cases, but also just uh, getting feedback from other actors in the system, like clients, like nonprofit organizations that refer pro bono cases to law firms to really get their sense of how well the pro bono lawyers are doing, what they could do better, what they could do to improve. Quality concerns uh, are cut across all sorts of different kinds of legal practices, and it's not just uh, something that uh, we want to hammer pro bono for. It seems like the answer here is definitely structural. It, it comes down to institutional structure that then ensures ethical and positive engagement by law firm lawyers who are doing this work. One of the ways in which I, I see pro bono evolving is that there's a greater um, institutional need uh, for firms to be um, engaged in the issues of the day and to attract talent, um, in some cases very openly, by touting their good works and the opportunities that are created for lawyers, including young lawyers, to pursue issues in which they're interested. And I think that's fantastic. Um, it, it, it's sort of interesting that in the metric, in the barometer of big law, that the American lawyer does measure pro bono commitments. And in, in, in business and corporations, there is a saying that that which gets measured gets achieved. And the idea that one of the criteria that firms are competing on to be at the top of the so-called AMLAW 100 is a pro bono criteria, that that makes some contribution to it. It creates an incentive for pro bono to be um, broadly undertaken and for many lawyers in a firm to participate in it in some ways. I think all of that is positive. Um, some of the ways in which I think big law could do a little bit better is to think more creatively and to have more programs that create opportunities for pro bono service outside of litigation contexts. And there are 
lots of different legal needs that entities and people have. Not all of them are about um, trials and discovery. And, you know, sometimes it's about forming a corporation or, or giving advice to a not-for-profit or, or something else. And I think the value of institutionalizing and having as part of the big law narrative that the resources and successes of the major law firms um, really carry with it a responsibility to serve others and serve people without the means to hire counsel of their own. That is a value of the profession and that is important to um, the continuity of the democracy and people's rights within it. And to have big law continue to make those commitments freely, unabashedly, and in ways that allow deep and meaningful experiences are part of the character of what distinguish the big law firms that have the resources to invest in this way um, from other segments of the market. I think my perspective now is, is that there really is so much to be said about pro bono and big law. It is a complex structure that accounts for a great deal of the legal services rendered both in the U.S. and globally. And whether it will be the vehicle for an anti-racist big law industry is something that I think is far more nuanced than I ever realized before starting this conversation. Yeah, I agree. There are so many more big picture questions to consider when we think about stakeholders in big law and how they fit into our ideas of what anti-racism is. I want to share Debo's reflections on pro bono work as a whole to leave us with some suggestions on what it brings to the legal profession by allowing lawyers to have meaningful work experiences with pro bono integrated into their existing law firm work. Working on pro bono cases has been one of the great joys um, of, of my life. It helped me to travel to the Supreme Court of the United States to see the first uh, my first argument ever and to participate in cases that were very meaningful from democracy cases and voting rights to capital cases involving uh, death penalty sentences and, and to understand the intense commitments and the um, ability of what it looks like to litigate a case with substantial resources um, for folks that may not have the means to litigate the case uh, without support, but certainly have very substantial legal issues and positions to vindicate. And it's been a rewarding personal experience because it's allowed me to do some of the work that motivated me to want to go to law school. And it's also been personally rewarding because I have seen the impact that these cases have in people's lives and how it lifts people up to have their causes taken up by counsel that's able and unafraid to fight to vindicate their positions in a variety of contexts. And as we close out this conversation, I also want to lean in on Professor Cummings' notions of the state of pro bono work today and where it could go tomorrow and the role that lawyers and especially law students will play in impacting and changing big law for the better. Lawyers all over the globe are now tapping into this tradition of pro bono service and trying to make a difference. In terms of what can be done to really target some of the issues that we've talked about, particularly kind of quality control and uh, really mobilizing 
pro bono to have the most impact. I think that uh, I want to emphasize to your listeners to think about what they can do, what leverage that they have, and how they should exercise it and when they should exercise it. And for law students in particular, um, those who are thinking about entering big law, I think the time to think about exercising power is before you make the leap when the firms are trying to recruit you, are fighting over you, and you're in a position to make demands so that when you enter, you do have standing to continue to build kind of a meaningful pro bono portfolio and then take over leadership over time and continue to push these really big and complicated institutions uh, toward doing the right thing. And by the right thing, uh, we, we you know we're talking about uh, really kind of approaching pro bono in a meaningful way that really takes its cue and its lead from the people who need the resources the most um, and really tries to shape pro bono around their needs in a way that advances them and creates a more inclusive and equitable democracy. Uh, that's one way at least that the system is going to change, uh, really kind of bringing in uh, resources and bringing in new talent um, that then shapes the meaning of pro bono over time in a way that really uh, uh, puts equity and inclusion at, at, the, at the forefront of it and makes sure that that actually is realized in practice. The other thing I would say is just that um, I think we all have to demand change from the outside of big firms. So these firms operate uh, in a context in which they're responsive to demands from the public, they're responsive to demands from the government, they're responsive to demands from corporate clients. And I think we all have a role in advocating for changes to government oversight, to professional oversight uh, that really increases the uh, incentives that law firms have to target pro bono in ways that are really meaningful, uh, uh, thoughtful, and responsive to the most important issues facing our communities. And I think we have the power to demand that our lawyers live up to the obligation to serve the public. And, and we're really in a unique time now, I think, to, tr to really focus on mobilizing toward that goal. Thank you for listening. This episode was produced by Alexis Banks, Sneha Pandia, and Marika Wright. It was sound edited by Devin Corton and recorded with the help of Jacob Rosati. We thank Caitlin Walsh for her assistance with this podcast. Our funding is provided by the Center on Constitutional Governance and the Columbia Law School Anti-Racism Grant Program. Please check out our website for a list of books and articles mentioned in this episode and all the music we played. In our next episode, we return closer to home and discuss building inclusive law schools. 